0: Welcome to another Deep Dive episode of the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is where we will dig deeper into the content from Sunday Sermon, consider even more ways of thinking about the Bible and how to live it, and encourage one another to follow Jesus more closely together. I'm your host, Will Barlow. Let's dive in. All right, well, welcome back to another deep dive. Uh, This one will be on the Battle of the Gods sermon that I did from this past Sunday. Now, in the sermon on Sunday, I spent a lot of my time talking about the mindset of polytheism versus the mindset of monotheism. And one of the things we discussed is that the reason why God went through the process of bringing the plagues was not merely to free his people uh, because there would have been a lot of um, faster, easier ways to do that. Um, So God had to have another goal. And the other goal that he had was to teach the Egyptians about himself and declare his glory to them in the hopes that they would choose to worship him. And I mentioned briefly that there were some peoples in Egypt that left along with the Israelites. Uh, so that's, that's good. Um, God accomplished his goals with that. So in this deep dive, we're going to do a couple different things. One of the things that we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some of the details in the accounts of the plagues that we just did not have time for on Sunday. Uh, We're also going to talk about some of the other details from the account here uh, that's really interesting. We're going to start with a couple of those. Um, Adam briefly mentioned the importance of the staff, Moses' staff, a few weeks ago in his sermon. The staff that Moses carried was a sign of authority. And it figured largely in the events uh, that that comprise the Exodus. So the staff was involved with a bunch of the plagues, for example. It was involved with the Reed Sea Crossing. It was involved with the water from the rock. It was involved with the battle with the, I believe it was the Amalekites. What's interesting about the staff is that the staff was an important image in the Egyptian society as well. The pharaohs would carry staffs. Um, or they'd be depicted with having a staff in their hand, that sort of thing. So the staff, the shepherd's staff in particular, was something that was important in that society. Now, related to the staff, we get some really interesting language that happens throughout the Exodus account. And there's sort of two key phrases that Carmen Imes points out in her Bible project class on the Exodus. And those two key words or phrases are mighty hand and outstretched arm. Both of those are used in Exodus 6. Mighty hand or strong hand is Exodus 6 Outstretched arm is Exodus um, 6.6. But they're both used throughout. Um, mighty hand or strong hand gets used in Exodus 13, for example, and Exodus uh, 14. Uh, Outstretched arm gets used in the Deuteronomy retellings of the Exodus and also later in Jeremiah 32. So you have this imagery of God uh, freeing his people with a mighty hand or a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Okay, he's going to deliver, Yahweh says he's going to deliver his people with these two things, his mighty or strong hand and his outstretched arm. What's interesting about this and something that Carmen Imes points out is that by using this language, Yahweh is deliberately using imagery that would have been commonly used for Pharaoh. Uh, There's a a very specific pose that was commonly used to depict the Pharaohs, especially at this time in Egypt's history. Now, one example of this can be found if you Google the Narmer Palette, N-A-R-M-E-R. Palette, P-A-L-L-E-T-T-E. This is a depiction of Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so by using this language of uh, a strong hand or mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the idea here is that Yahweh is going to beat Pharaoh at his own game, his own game. Now, again, if you want more details, more information on this, I recommend the Bible Project class on Exodus that's taught by Dr. Carmen Imes. On Sunday, we talked a lot about Pharaoh believing that he is a god. He was one of the gods in the pantheon of Egypt. And we also talked about how the Pharaohs throughout this period were attempting to steal the blessing of God for themselves. You know, God had been blessing his people with prosperity and growth. And the pharaohs of this time frame of that hundred or so years before the Exodus took place, um, you know, they co-opted that blessing. They stole that blessing for themselves. So there's another layer to this that we didn't consider on Sunday. And that is um, that you have to be in a kind of weird mental place to think that it's okay to enslave a group of people. And in the book that we've been uh, pulling from so much in this sermon series, and specifically this past Sunday, uh, The Exodus, You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi David Foreman, Rabbi Foreman talks about this. He talks about uh, the ancient polytheistic worldview, and he talks about this, this sort of added aspect of it where might makes right. Uh, works in that kind of a system, how if Pharaoh is a god, then he can decide right or wrong for himself. There's nothing preventing him from doing that. So again, since Pharaoh is conceived of as a god, since he has excessive authority in that culture, he can make the decision to enslave people. That's totally acceptable. Uh, No one can tell him not to do that. And so it becomes socially acceptable and morally permissible based on the nature of the society and the culture in question to enslave people. And that is obviously a huge problem. It's a problem for a lot of reasons. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that the reason why we wanna think about this more and think more deeply about this Is we want to understand the lengths that God was going to to educate Pharaoh about monotheism, you know it's it's not just a matter of of God uh, freeing his people, as important as that was, you know freeing his people is certainly part of the equation. Them being uh, free to worship him is part of the equation. Those you know, but that's all related to the Hebrew people very specifically. But God is also thinking about what happens when they're gone? What happens when the Hebrew people are gone? If he doesn't make an attempt to re-educate Pharaoh and re-educate this society, then what's going to happen when the Hebrews are gone? Likely, they're just going to find another group of people to subjugate and enslave and dehumanize and, all the, and abuse and all the above. So it's really interesting here to think about this that God, God is going to these incredible lengths through the plagues to educate Pharaoh, not just for his own nature and his own glory, although there's certainly that aspect there, not just to confront polytheism, which is what we focused on on Sunday, but also there's like this deeper ethical concern uh, taking place here. And And so, you know, Pharaoh's obviously guilty because he's the one who's, in charge of all this and he has the ability to change it if he would want to but the Egyptian people are also allowing this to happen and because they are allowing all this to happen when they when they probably deep down inside their consciences know that it's wrong um, they also face the consequences and so the exodus is it it is a a re-education process it is uh, an indictment of polytheism more generally, but it also, I think, serves as a rebuke to the people who enslaved the Hebrews at the same time as it freed the Hebrews. So you have the, the freeing of these Hebrews, but you also have the, a rebuking of the people who enslaved uh, the Hebrews. So it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on here. Now, I want to transition and take some time at this point to outline some interesting patterns in the plagues themselves. And for more information on the information I'm about to go through, I again recommend the Bible Project Exodus Scroll. Uh, They do, I think, (coughs) a handful, 10 or so podcasts on the Exodus Scroll. In episode three, they spend time talking about uh, the plagues. They spend time talking about some of the themes related to the plagues which we're going to get to here in a little bit so there's a lot of great detail in that episode three of the exodus scroll on the bible project podcast you can also um, spend some time in dr carmen imes's class on exodus in the bible project classroom so both of those are excellent places excellent free resources if you want to know uh, more information about the pattern of the plagues, or where I'm getting some of this information—that's where I'm getting it. So, before we get into the finer details on the plagues, let's talk about themes really quickly. As we talked about on Sunday, there's sort of a high-level message being communicated through the plagues, and and that message is Yahweh is saying, you know, I am God. I am I am uh, really a powerful uncreated being, you know, I am the creator, not Pharaoh, you know, not your pantheon of gods. I'm in charge of of all of creation, not Pharaoh, not all of your gods. If you insist on abusing my people, I will attack your livelihood. You, I will, you know, attack your culture. I'm going to attack uh, the things that bind your society together. And your lives are going to be way more difficult as a result of it. So that's essentially what Yahweh is saying to them through these plagues. Um, And so the metaphor I used on Sunday was imagine that you have all these things. You have like Pharaoh, you have polytheism, these other gods. You have um, like the natural processes like the Nile flooding. You have the economy and the culture and the social norms, you have all of these things that go into making a society what it is. And, and I use the, the metaphor of a beautifully woven blanket with this, this really intricate design pattern on it. And what Yahweh does through the plagues is he's unraveling that blanket. He's unraveling it thread by thread. And he's demonstrating to them that they are not in charge, but that he's in charge. And there's another way of talking about this that the Bible Project uh, uses, which I think is really helpful. And that is that there's an opposite of cre- creation is happening. There's an opposite of creation. So you have you have creation, which is like the building of something, um, you know, light and beauty and order and structure. And God does all those things in Genesis chapter 1 he creates all these things and he makes it beautiful and lovely and orderly and that sort of a thing. So when God undoes this in Egypt, then it is a process of what you could call like decreation. It is an undoing of creation. And um, he's using what looks like naturalistic kind of things frequently through the plagues, Um, you know, animals and attacks against animals and Natural disasters and things like that. So, it's really what we're supposed to get out of the plagues is that this is a um, decreation. He's going backwards in time, you could sort of say. Now, with those sort of themes in mind, let's go through some of the details on the plagues themselves. Um, Many scholars, including the Bible Project, have found that it's helpful to look at the plagues in terms of triads. And so, There are three triads. One, two, three fits as a triad or a unit. Uh, Four, five, and six fit as the second unit. And seven, eight, and nine fit as the third unit. And the 10th plague is sort of like a bonus plague, the plague of the firstborn. So the first plague, here are some things that, that scholars have noticed. The first plague in each triad takes place in the morning. So plagues one, four, and seven take place in the morning. And all take place near Pharaoh by the waters of the Nile. And all of these also have the phrase, you will know that I am Yahweh. And we talked about how that phrase, you will know that I am Yahweh, occurs seven times in this part of scripture. And three of those times occur in plagues one, four, and seven. That's interesting. Now the second plague in each triad, plagues two, five, and eight, They all take place with Moses meeting Pharaoh at Pharaoh's house um, in the court, you could say, in the court of Pharaoh. Now, the third plague in each triad, plague three, six and nine, these all have no warning. They just happen. There's no conversation. There's no warning. They just, boom, happen. A couple other things about the plagues. The first two plagues were duplicated by the magicians. We also know that the staff to snake thing was duplicated by the magicians, although that's not really a plague. That was like a sign before the plagues. So the first two plagues are duplicated by the magicians. None of them um, are after that are able to be duplicated by the magicians. Um, The second triad, the purpose of the second triad, so four, five and six, is to show that Yahweh is more powerful than the gods of Egypt and the magicians. And one of the ways that that second triad did that is by separating Israel from Egypt explicitly, that the the Israelites in Goshen didn't feel the ramifications of those particular plagues. The third triad demonstrated with even more precision and power that Yahweh is the only true God through the nature of the miracles. Hailstones, we talked about hailstones with fire and ice contained in them in on Sunday. You know, that's plague seven. Eight, locusts was incredibly dramatic. Nine, darkness. Um, it, it's just so, so these are such powerful um, moments that really you see Yahweh is the only true God. The, these The nature of these miracles are just so profound. And so... Like I talked about on Sunday, there's sort of this amplification over time where the, the plagues get more and more severe. Now, with that in mind, let's go through the plagues one by one. We're going to do this sort of quickly, but way more slowly than we were able to on Sunday. So that's good. So the first plague, again, the plague of the blood in the Nile, it was an attack As we talked about on Sunday, it's an attack on the god Happy. Um, This is a plague that demonstrated God's authority over the river god of the Egyptians, Happy. Um, The Nile, of course, also was the life source of Egypt. So this is an attack on the local economy and uh, could severely disrupt society. And it was also retribution for the murder of the baby boys. Uh, of Israel that had happened you know about a hundred years before this took place so that's the first plague and we talked a little bit about that on Sunday the second plague which we didn't talk about at all on Sunday is the plague of the frogs and of course frogs are amphibians they're land and water animals Um, there was an Egyptian god uh, who was sort of tied to frogs I think they had the head of a frog I I think it was the god Heket, uh, the birth and fertility goddess, had the head of a frog. Um, you know, we talked, you know, briefly about this on Sunday that Pharaoh asked for the removal of the frogs on tomorrow instead of today to gain an appreciation for the precision of Yahweh, as Rabbi Foreman talks about in the Exodus he almost passed over. I also wanted to share this quote from Bruce Wells, who wrote the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Background Commentary on Exodus. So again, the ZIBBC, the main goal of that um, commentary is to share uh, the ancient uh, perspective of uh, the culture and um, sort of the history behind the events in the Bible. And this is what he says about the second plague. He says, another idea is that this plague is one more attack on Egyptian ideology with the frog goddess Heket as its particular target. Heket was a giver of life. As the consort of Khnum, a creator god, she assisted in the creation of infants. In a middle middle kingdom, circa 2055 to 1650 BC tale, she and others serve with Isis at the birth of three kings. Later, she develops a special association with childbirth and becomes a kind of patron patron goddess of midwives. Egyptians did not, however, associate every common frog with the goddess. If there is symbolic meaning in the account of this plague, it may simply be to point out the inability of Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods to maintain proper order. First, the water is ruined and now the frogs are out of control. The disorder is taking different forms, end quote. So what? Wells is saying here is, is that maybe you could say that Heket was um, in some sense being attacked through this plague of frogs, but that the larger, the larger thing going on here is that um, the order in society, the order in Egypt, the, the way that they're used to living life, it's, it's becoming undone. Everything's getting out of control, it's not doing what it normally does. So God is disrupting the natural order of things. He's he's um, instigating decreation. The third plague, the plague of gnats, uh, it's interesting, the gnats, The I think Tim Mackey points out that the gnats come from the dust of the land. It's the same language as the creation of humanity. So you have these. Agents of destruction that come from the dust, just like we came from the dust. Sort of interesting callback to Genesis. The fourth plague, the plague of flies, um, the language that's used says that they are going to fill the land. Again, that's a hearkening back to Genesis, uh, filling the land. And they're not going to help. Um, they're not going to prosper, they're going to decompose things. That's what flies do. they help decompose things. So again, this is like using creation language, but um, in a decreation kind of way. Uh, What's interesting about this plague is this is the first time (coughs) that God separates between Goshen and the area around the Nile. So that Egypt is affected and Israel is not. This is the first time it gets explicitly mentioned. Now, we could assume that the Nats really didn't bother the Hebrews or that the water only affected the the Egyptians. You know, the the text doesn't tell us um, for sure, 100%. But I think we can gather from the later ones that Yahweh protected his people, likely in the earlier ones too. But it does start explicitly separating the results in Goshen and the results for the Egyptian people, starting with the fourth plague. The fifth plague was an illness. God again distinguishes between Israel and Egypt, and he sets an appointed time for the plague. Um, And then Pharaoh, which we talked about this on Sunday, Pharaoh investigates to make sure that the plague does not affect the uh, Israelite livestock. So, you know, again, the key point here is that God says, you know, to Moses, you're going to tell him, you know, no, nothing's going to be affected in all of Goshen. Um, and after Pharaoh gets this report of all the, the carnage, all these livestock that died in his land, the first thing he wants to do is make sure that Moses is right, that no animals in Goshen are affected. Um, it's an interesting response. It teaches us a little bit about the psychology of where Pharaoh was at that moment. Uh, so that's interesting to consider for sure there is another layer to this too which is cool and that is something i got from the new american commentary in Exodus by douglas stewart he says this the pantheistic egyptians revered all animals but bird birds and livestock more than fish and amphibians for them to have lost livestock would constitute a serious blow indeed for them to have lost livestock while the israelites retained all theirs represented a nationwide humiliation end quote. So, you know, fifth plague, things are getting amped up. You know, God is distinguishing between his people and the Egyptian people. And, you know, he's getting more and more intense in their face in terms of what would have really mattered to them as a society. The sixth plague is the plague of boils. Um, Boil, is in Hebrew the word "snake" backwards? Snake, um, and so there's a lot you can think about with that. The snake uh, in the garden, the snake imagery with Pharaoh, um, the idea that the staffs turned into snakes. So there's a lot. There's a lot to snake. Um, you can think about, and the bio project has more on that. Um, this is, I think what I point out on Sunday was that the magicians could not even stand in front of Moses because of the boils, you know, the boils, um, they caused them to not even be able to, to stand in court anymore, which is interesting because the magicians play a big part in the first two plagues. Uh, you know, they duplicate the results of the first two plagues. Uh, they, they were able to turn their staffs into snakes, but they're not able to reverse any of the plagues like like Moses can through the power of god which would be the really helpful thing for them to do but the judgment that comes to them in the sixth plague it ends up with them being you know sidelined basically permanently sidelined the seventh plague is where things sort of amp up even further and that's where we get those special hailstones, the fire and the ice together. I shared that quote from the Exodus you almost passed over on Sunday. Um, again, the idea here is that you've got uh, fire and ice contained in the hail. And you know this is a sign that Yahweh is a God above all. You know, If you're a polytheist, there's no way you can get fire and ice together. Um, they don't cooperate. It implies mutual destruction. You cannot think of a reason why these gods would work together. And, um, there's also a really big destructive element to this. Um, you know, and God, God warns them, God tells them, Hey, this is going to happen. You might want to bring people in and bring your animals in. And the people that there are Egyptians that do that, there are Egyptians that bring their animals inside and their animals are spared. Meanwhile, there are unfortunately people that end up outside and they get, you know, beaten to death by the hailstones. and it's 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 wild to me because God gives Pharaoh and the Egyptians a warning to escape the damage of the hail, and some people don't they don't take that they don't take that um, that, that way out, that way of escape that God provided. What's interesting in the wake of this plague, as I talked about on Sunday, is this is the first time where Pharaoh, his refusal to let the people go, is considered sin. He he identifies what he's doing as sin. He identifies that he has a moral responsibility in relationship to Yahweh. Um, so this, this is a really fascinating moment. Um, this seventh plague seems like some kind of a turning point in the narrative where from here on, I mean, we've sort of, especially on Sunday, sort of gave Pharaoh the benefit of the doubt in terms of his mindset. But here we can see that he definitely sees the truth here in a moment of clarity that Yahweh is the only true God, that he's not really a God, and that he He needs to stop pretending. Unfortunately, as we know, he doesn't stop pretending. He continues to pretend, and it leads to disaster for Egypt. The eighth plague, the plague of locusts, continues the destruction from plague seven. Uh, what's interesting about this one is God's breath, his ruach, brings them in. Um, again, ruach, spirit, breath, that's creation language from Genesis chapter one. Very interesting call back to Genesis one here. God's undoing, he's undoing all this stuff through, through decreation. Then, of course the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And what's really interesting about the phraseology here, I think you'll get the reference immediately is there's an inversion here. When, when the darkness comes, it says, let there be darkness, just like let there be light, Genesis 1, 3. So, again, you have decreation going on. You have a um, really powerful uh, miracle happening here. I wanted to share another quote from Bruce Wells on his Z I B B C Exodus commentary. This is what he says. He says, from the perspective of the Egyptians... The absence of sunlight had profound meaning. They believed that the regular circling of the sun god in the sky meant his blessing on Egypt. Any interruption in that cycle spelled disaster. Thus, this text seems to be targeting the sun god, probably the most venerated deity in Egypt. But which Egyptian god does the biblical text have in mind? Throughout the Egyptian history, the sun was worshipped as a manifestation of various deities, such as Atum, Ra, Amon, and Amun-Ra. Pharaoh, too, was associated with the sun. Despite this ambiguity, the narrative of Exodus is once again claiming utter powerlessness for the king and the gods of Egypt. Moreover, darkness frequently turns up in biblical texts as a symbol of judgment. Isaiah 8.22, Joel 2.2, 2, Zephaniah 1.15. Here the Egyptian life force has been extinguished. For them at this juncture in the narrative, the favor or at least efficacy of their gods has vanished. The wrath of the Hebrew deity has reached its most intense stage yet. Creation has been undone. Chaos has returned, end quote. So Wells, again, just sharing some of what we talked about on Sunday in a little bit more detail. And um, anyway, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Now, I'm just going to briefly mention the 10th plague. I know I didn't do this on Sunday, and we're going to spend way more time on the 10th plague uh, this upcoming Sunday with John, our brother John Ely. But, you know, the 10th plague is the plague of the firstborn. The plague of the firstborn. And I just want to say that there's a lot more details that John's going to share. But the one detail I do want to share at this time is, is that everyone is invited to take part in this. You know, even the Egyptians could have taken part in the Passover. They could have been a part of this. Everyone was invited, and all they had to do was they had to do what Yahweh had commanded them to do, which was by coming into the house, and the house is ark spelled backwards. And so God is giving them an ark. He's giving them a way to escape. He's giving them um, a ritual to perform to show that they are on Yahweh's side and not on Pharaoh's side, that they have to choose. They have to choose Yahweh or Pharaoh, though. And um, anyway, fascinating stuff. And I'm sure we're gonna get into way more detail with it with John Ely. So I don't wanna steal any more on that. I wanna transition now to the details on hardening Pharaoh's heart. I I briefly mentioned this on Sunday that there was a lot more detail behind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, You know, growing up, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was one of the uh, toughest parts of this account for me. And um, when I, when I started reading the Exodus, he almost passed over and Rabbi Foreman started walking through um, hardening Pharaoh's heart. It, It just, oh my gosh, just solved so many problems for me. So again, you know, we've been, I've been mentioning this book over and over again. If you want to Understand more about the plagues, more about the process of hardening, more about the the process of exodus. I really do recommend this book, uh, "The Exodus You Almost Passed Over" by Rabbi David Foreman. The the key to this, and I'm I'm going to give a very short version of I'm going to try to condense a lot of what Rabbi Foreman does uh, over a number of chapters. Um, sort of briefly. So bear with me, and I hope this helps you. And if you, again, if you want more information, you can pick up the book for yourself. But in chapter 11, which is called Stubbornness and Courage, Rabbi Foreman sort of broke this whole thing open for me by pointing out that there are two words used for hardening throughout this account, two completely different words. In our English translations, they smooth over it by always translating them hardening, and it's, it's a real disservice. It's a real disservice uh, to what's actually going on uh, behind the scenes uh, in the Hebrew language. Um, you know, my problems with, you know, how can God violate Pharaoh's free will and harden his heart? Um, that problem doesn't exist in the original Hebrew. It only exists in our English translations. Um, so, again, I can't. I can't overstate this enough, how important this is. There are two different words or two different you know phrases we could say for hardening. So here they are. The first one is Chizuk uh, Halev, which means strength of heart. Strength of heart, with, which both in our culture and in ancient Egypt would have been a good thing. Strengthening your heart would be a good thing. Then the other one is kibud halev, which means hardness of heart or stubbornness of heart. So, what Rabbi Foreman argues in his book is that if God were to strengthen Pharaoh's heart to do what Pharaoh wants to do already, that that's not a violation of Pharaoh's free will, but rather an amplification of his free will. And what we find throughout the battle of the gods is that when when one of these words gets attributed to Yahweh performing the action, Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart, every time except for one, it's to strengthen his heart. He's strengthening Pharaoh's heart. Yahweh is strengthening Pharaoh's heart. We're going to talk about why here in a second. But I just want to point out that there's only one time where he actually makes Pharaoh stubborn. There's only one time when, when Yahweh claims to do that. We'll talk about that too in a minute. So now I want to talk about why. Why does, why does God want to strengthen Pharaoh's heart? Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Now remember, Pharaoh is battling with Yahweh, the supreme God who created everything. Pharaoh is going through this process and he's slowly understanding that he should not consider himself to be a god. Uh, he shouldn't think of himself as uh, in the right to enslave people. You know, he he should be letting the people go, the Hebrews go. But he's stubborn. He really doesn't want to change his mind. So as the plagues take place, and as Pharaoh has increasing evidence that his view of reality is distorted, he has a choice. Is he going to change or not? And since the plagues are painful to Pharaoh, but mostly painful for his people, you know, you can imagine that he's sitting on the top of society. And so these things are affecting the, the peasants, so to speak, but they're probably not affecting him as bad as they're affecting everyone else, right? But they're painfully, especially for his people. And they're coming to him and they're complaining. And, you know, he gets tired of hearing their complaints and that sort of thing. What God doesn't want, what Rabbi Foreman argues, is what God doesn't want is he doesn't want Pharaoh to stop the battle without a changed mind or a changed heart. So God, god really wants Pharaoh to change his mind, change his heart, and to stop being the kind of person that would enslave people, uh, not be the kind of person who could consider himself to be a god and could do whatever he wants to do. And so if Pharaoh gets to the point ever where like he wants to give up, But the reason that he wants to give up is not because he's really changed his mind, but because he's tired of the complaints of his people, or he's tired of the damage that the plagues are causing to his society and his economy. Like he just wants life to go back to normal. You know, God God is not going to let him stop under those circumstances. Um, In those circumstances, what God's going to do is he's going to act to strengthen his heart. He's not going to, in other words, he's not going to allow Pharaoh to give in to weakness. Because in those cases, Pharaoh would just be ready to give up out of weakness, not because of an actual change in his heart, uh, change of his mind, change in the way he's going to rule, change in the way that that culture is going to work. And God is really about change here. God is looking for a change. He's looking for a change of mind, a change of heart so that that, you know, this society is not going to enslave people anymore. And so, um, you know, he needs he needs Pharaoh. God needs Pharaoh to stay in the battle, to give him another chance for more data, more chances to change his heart. That's really what God's after. And so that's why, you know, again, the vast majority of times when it says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, what it really means is he it strengthened Pharaoh's heart. And I think Rabbi Foreman has a point that that's why. That's why God wants to do this. God wants to do this to affect a changed heart in Pharaoh if he can. Now, I just want to point out here that Rabbi Foreman is not the only one who noticed the various words for hardening in this record. I'm going to bring back our friend Bruce Wells, ZI BBC Exodus. This is what Bruce Wells says. Interestingly, Yahweh is the subject of kibbut only once in Exodus 10.1. All other times it is the heart of Pharaoh or Pharaoh himself. When the verb shizuk is used, Pharaoh is never the subject. Thus, Yahweh tends to be the one to strengthen Pharaoh's heart, whereas Pharaoh himself tends to be the one to make heavy his heart. A possible conclusion is that the text uses two different approaches to describe and critique Pharaoh's stubbornness. See comments on 8.15. On the one hand, by strengthening Pharaoh's heart, Yahweh is giving the king exactly what he wants, stout-heartedness, a concept highly prized by the Egyptians. In this case, however, getting what he wants leads Pharaoh and his land straight to disaster. On the other hand, it is generally not Yahweh who makes heavy Pharaoh's heart. It is instead Pharaoh himself who heaps the guilt of wrongdoing, assuming this is the import of a heavy heart, See so he comments on 8.15, on himself and thereby dooms himself to punishment, End quote. So again, Bruce Wells here identifies that there are two different words used in the context and he tries to make sense of them in various ways. I tend to like Rabbi Foreman's take on this a little bit more than Wells's. Now I want to read the one account where Yahweh does make Pharaoh's heart stubborn instead of strengthening his heart. And we're going to ask the question, does Yahweh do this supernaturally? Does Yahweh harden or make stubborn Pharaoh's heart supernaturally? Does he put his finger down on the scale, so to speak? And I think we're going to find that the answer is clearly no. So in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, we're going to read just 12 verses here to start. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened, that's the word we're looking at, where I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may May tell them in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron, they come in, they say this, then they leave. Verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he, Pharaoh, said to them, Go serve Yahweh your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, Yahweh be with you, If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve Yahweh, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all the hail has left. So there's a couple interesting features in this passage. Uh, this is the first mention of the servants of Pharaoh getting involved in the story directly. They go to Pharaoh and they say, What's going on here? How long are you going to let this guy uh, beat us up? Basically. And Moses and Aaron leave the throne room, and it looks like, you know, the text doesn't say, but it looks like the servants go behind Pharaoh's back and summon Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. So in verse 8, we see when when Pharaoh starts sort of negotiating with Moses and Aaron. Um we we see Pharaoh here is probably relenting on behalf of his servants. He tells them that the men can leave. Now Rabbi Foreman points out that you know maybe if Moses and Aaron keep their requests minimal, if they word it kindly, you know, Pharaoh is probably ready to fold here. But instead we get Moses' words in verse 9. Moses says, We will go with our young and our old, we will go with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. So there's no way here for Pharaoh to diplomatically save face here. He can't get out of this and save his ego at the same time. And that is what Rabbi Foreman argues what verse 1 means. God never makes Pharaoh's heart hard using supernatural means. He just appeals to his own ego And essentially forces him to continue going by having Moses and Aaron be just so blunt and abrupt. Now, after this happens, um, after the plague of locusts takes place, um, Pharaoh is again reconsidering his uh, situation, but his ego still won't let him relent. Let's let's read the same chapter from verses 24 to 29. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind from us. Take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with, with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. That's strengthened, remember, strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Then Pharaoh said to them, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So again, you know, Pharaoh sort of throws Moses a bone and gives Moses a chance to like diplomatically resolve the situation. And again, Moses does not mince his words. God has Moses confront Pharaoh's ego directly, knowing that Pharaoh would not relent. So this is what... At the end of his treatment of the plagues and of hardening, um, Rabbi Foreman says on page 144 of his book, he says, All in all, we might say this about God's involvement in Pharaoh's recalcitrance. In the end, it appears that God really did harden Pharaoh's heart, but there was nothing supernatural about the process. Pharaoh had free will to the bitter end. His pride just didn't let him use it, end quote. And so I, I think that's probably... The best way I've I've seen on handling the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that God generally was strengthening his heart. In general, Pharaoh was hardening or making you know doing foolish uh, things with his own heart, and just not relenting because of his ego. And then the one time when the negative use is used to harden a heart, Yahweh, we see in the context there that. Moses and Aaron just say inflammatory things to Pharaoh. At the end of this deep dive here, I do want to mention a couple echoes of the plagues. Um, The plagues do uh, have a small role in the retelling of the Exodus story uh, later in Israelite history. And so I just want to point out, and I'm not going to read these because this deep dive has already gone pretty long. But if you want to read them for yourselves, go to Psalm 78 especially verses 42 to 51 and then Psalm 105 verses, especially verses 26 to 36 you'll get these dramatic retellings of these plagues and remember too that that psalms in the in the ancient uh, Israelite you know ancient Hebrew world you know th- these were songs that they would have sung and would have helped them remember the truth of what God had done for them through history. Um, we're going to he- see next week when we talk about, Passover, how important uh, remembering is, how important uh, remembering what God has done for us is. And, you know, the Psalms repeatedly ask us to remember what God has done for his people. And the plagues were a part of that. And like I said, get mentioned in some dramatic retellings in those two Psalms. I also want to point out that the theme of Yahweh battling gods happens uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, there are these various battles that take place between Yahweh and, and gods. Um, and then, of course, the people struggle with idolatry throughout various moments in their history. Um, you can see that really all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, um, I- including with, with the Exodus account itself. You know, they deal with idolatry uh, even during while they're in the middle of the, uh, the Exodus. It's wild, but that's totally true. And, um, you know, so you have you have several accounts that are really interesting with Yahweh battling other gods. Um, One of them is when um, Dagon, you know, the ark gets taken by the Philistines and um, Dagon ends up, you know, with his hands and his feet cut off. And, you know, that whole account, which is really, really fun. Um, But the one that I think is probably the best one or my favorite one is in First Kings chapter 18 verses 20 to 40, which is when Elijah has a battle with the prophets of Baal after the three years of, of no rain. And, you know, Elijah's been taken care of by the ravens for a year. And then he gets taken care of by uh, the pagan woman. Anyway, uh, for two years. And so then he comes back to Israel and then they have this big battle uh, with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. So, you know, you just think about You know what God is doing, the purposes of God, and um, how He accomplishes things throughout time, and and really there are these cycles, there are these echoes, there are these different ways um, where these things take place. Um, Fascinatingly, of course, we can also see the echo with uh, Jesus going up um, into the wilderness for forty days and then dealing with uh, the temptations of the devil, you know, directly of the devil and his battle with the devil there in that moment, and how he was able to win that battle um, and secure the victory uh, for us through his sinless life and then his death on the cross. So awesome, wonderful stuff. Well, thanks again for joining on this deep dive. I hope that it helped you, and uh, stay tuned for more as we continue through our series on the Exodus. Thanks for joining us on this deep dive. I want to close by thanking Dave Tench for his musical contributions and Paula Ely for her help with design and editing. We'll catch you next time. Let's continue to follow Jesus together.